Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. one of the founders of CTP. I'm sort of second generation faculty, but the wonderful man, Philip McKenna, that Michael's talking about is indeed one of the elders of our tribe. And uh, at CTP, I lecture to the introductory, at the introductory phase on existential dimensions of psychotherapy. It's primarily a program of psychodynamic, psychoanalytic therapy, and uh, I have always felt that the therapy that I practice, at least, is not to deal just with the psyche, the psychotherapy, but that, in fact, a whole person comes into my office and I am a whole person in whatever ways I can be with them. So the existential underpinnings of what it is to be human in a world with others um, has always been uh, at the uh, sort of fulcrum of the way that I think about psychotherapy. And partly why I've spent so much time thinking about, thinking with, talking about Martin Heidegger. He didn't, according to my research, ever get that Tao Te Ching finished. Hmm but he was working hard on a new translation of it. Uh, it had only recently been translated into German. And I think you're right, Michael. I think that uh, it, Heidegger, for me, is one of the pivots, uh, one of the openings to um, what we now think of it, Eastern thinking coming into the West. So Heidegger is one of the major philosophers. Well, let me just tell you how I like to talk. I usually like to talk by walk. I like to walk. And when I, when I, um, when I lecture at CTP, it's a, a bigger room, and uh, students usually sit in rows. Uh, but whenever they come in for my lectures, they're kind of starting to find out that I've made exactly this, a semicircle, so that we can sort of see each other. Um, but I, and there's usually a blackboard behind me, and uh, I often get up and, and walk uh, as I teach. So I probably won't tonight, but if, if you see me <laughs> wanting to, that's, <laughs> that's it. And the other thing is that I, I have a script, um, but I, I really do believe that uh, thinking is dialogic. 
Um, and so I sort of have ideas of what I want to say, but they are already shifting as I, as I sort of notice faces in the room and, and feel the room. Um, so there will be questions. Um, I will pause at points specifically to ask for questions. There will be questions at the end. But if you can't wait for a question, it's okay to signal somehow to me that you're not understanding or you're really understanding and you want to talk about it. Okay? So, Martin Heidegger is one of the major philosophers of 20th century Europe. Uh, Whether you like him or not, you agree he had an impact. And his first and only book, I meant to bring it and I didn't, it's a big thick book called Being and Time. Uh, The rest of his work were academic lectures and um, essays and shorter pieces that were gathered into books. But his only real book is Being and Time. It was published in 1927 between the wars and it was literally a seismic event in Western philosophy. It was a groundbreaking new way of thinking about a very, very old question. And that is the question, what is being? And tonight I want to introduce you to just a handful of the ideas in being in time. Um, when I lecture to the, the new students at CTP, it's, oh, there's being in time, the Macquarie and Robinson. That's the first English translation, 1962, and then there's a later one by Joan Stambaugh, and it's fabulous to read them parallel. Sometimes they don't seem to be the same book. <laughs> uh, when I, I do introductory lectures at, at CTP, um, I spend at least two, two-and-a-half-hour evenings on Heidegger. And then when I teach the reading seminar at the upper level on being in time, students spend two full academic years of monthly seminars uh, on that one book. And we usually don't get to the end of it. (laughs) So tonight is not going to be a full feed, but I hope to whet your appetites. Okay? In my work as a psychotherapist over the last 20 years, um, I have been aware of how often uh, human suffering results from the simple, difficult fact that we are in the world with others. A client will say, if only I'd had another mother, all my problems be solved. And I sit there thinking, I wouldn't have existed if you'd had another mother. We are always, always in part formed by the other and the others in our world. And this is kind of a psychological spin on what Heidegger was trying to grapple with in Being in Time. His his breakthrough, which in some ways feels so obvious, but it was so new at the time, was that we are in the world with others all the time. There's no such thing, although many philosophies were trying to, in the West, were trying to teach us this, like bend us into this, there's no such thing as an isolated me and a space and then a whole bunch of isolated yous. But Western philosophy at this time was firmly convinced that this, in fact, was the truth. 
about reality. Even when I sit at my desk uh, in an empty house, even when you're on a solo canoe trip in Tomogamy, Heidegger says you are with others. And we'll get to that. That's an important idea. Now, Heidegger created a new term for this understanding of human existence. He called the human way of being in the world Dasein. And that's never translated. It's always used that people use the, English, uh, the German word Da, D-A-S-E-I-N. D-A-S-I-S-E-I-N. Dasein. And it's a common, somewhat old-fashioned word in German. And it's used to talk about the span of someone's life. You'll often see it in obituaries. Herr so-and-so's Dasein, his lived life. Uh, it's often commonly translated as simply existence. But Heidegger, one of the things that fascinates me about Heidegger, because I love words, is he was always listening to the hidden bits of words. So I imagine that when he, he dis- rediscovered this word in German, da is a preposition, da, and in German it means both here and there. Ich bin da is, means I'm here. And kids in elementary school, they take attendance and they call out your name, you go da. Um, but if you uh, walked in and said, where is, as I did, the washroom, you go da, there. Okay? So, sein, S-E-I-N, is the German verb to be. So, to be here, there. And Heidegger uses this to suggest that the being, the human being that stretches between here and there, actually creates an openness through which being reveals. And this openness he called the clearing. And he used the German word Lichtung, which is simply a description of those unexpected openings that you'll come upon from time to time walking through a dense woods. You know, be the dense wood, and then all of a sudden there'll be an opening. And that's a Lichtung, or clearing. And if any of you have had that experience in a forest, things reveal themselves differently when you come into an opening than they do in the confines of the forest. Something about that opening that is both here and stretches there is, is what Heidegger was intuiting about the human way of being in the world. The central question for Heidegger in Being and Time was a question he felt thinkers had forgotten over the centuries of Western philosophy since the pre-Socratic Greeks. That's back before Socrates, who's before Plato, who's before Aristotle. That's way back. According to the West, it's way back. (laughs) And this is the question that had been forgotten. What is being? He felt Philosophy in the West had been very caught up with what is a quality, what is an essence, what is, what is, but not what is, is, what is being. And 
Throughout his life work, he died in 1975, he returns to this question in different ways. It really almost, I feel it, it's, it's like it almost haunted him. At one point he asks a question that I think is just wonderful in, in the terms of this question of being, and he says, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, his approach to the question of being was to study the being that asks the question, and that's the human being. And so much of being in time is devoted to describing who the human being is. Now, we're talking basics here. Before anyone becomes anything, a father, a daughter, a Canadian, a yoga practitioner, a high school graduate, famous, not so famous, before any of that, each of us already is. And this is what fascinated Heidegger. It is this stark I am before anything else gets added on to it that he tries to plumb to the depths. A man named Jonathan Ray wrote a delightful little book just called Heidegger and in it he writes the peculiarity of the question of being is that we are engaged in it all the time our asking of it is coextensive with our existence just by existing you are a question of being so we've got Dasein this is the first word I want you to kind of get a sense of. It's the human way of being that allows a kind of opening. Okay? And it is a being that is in the world with others always. So there are two more words from being in time. Ontological. Anyone who studied philosophy will notice know that one and ontic, and these are both very important words in being and time. And they both derive from the Greek word for being, ontos. And ontology is the knowledge of what makes us be, or what it is to be. So there's a whole field of philosophy called ontology. And being and time has been called a fundamental ontology because Heidegger concentrates on the underlying shared fundamentals of human being. The essentials of the so-called question of being at its very most basic. Now he shapes this exploration around the human kind of being, describing essentials of existence all humans share. Okay? For instance, as I've said, every human is in the world with others, according to Heidegger. That is a universal, shared, ontological structure of being human. There is never a human who is out of world, no matter how strange or disturbing or isolating an experience may be even deep in dreaming sleep or cycling along an empty country road, you are always in the world 
and always in some way or other with others. For instance, I, other than Michael, I, I don't believe I had ever before tonight and my husband had met any of you. I don't recognize any faces. But I was with you for quite a while, since about Christmas time when I was asked to do this. I have been with not so much you as individuals, but with, with you in my thinking about speaking tonight. And any of you who actually intended to come to hear about Heidegger, <laughs> you, you had some sort of with me that brought you toward this, even though we had never met. And Mike, who had uh, given me directions on how to get here tonight, I was chuckling when people were finished the, the meditation, because he told me that I would come into a crowded um, coat room and to take my... What I didn't know he meant was it was going to be crowded with people. It was a densely packed, and I said, ah, oh, yes, here we are. Even the coat room, you know, is a, is a with place. So... Um, Heidegger actually maintains that we can only experience what we call being alone because we actually fundamentally and first of all are with others. He calls being alone a deficient mode of being with. And that's not deficient in a kind of a moral sense. It's just, it's not, um, it's not a being with that is full of being with. It's, it's, it's got um, a, a kind of an emptiness. But it only can be experienced because we know that we, we know what it is to be with. And we know this from the very beginning. Uh, we're conceived in another human's body who holds us and gives birth to us and we are born into an already waiting world of others. So in the world and with others are ontological shared structures of existence that are always true for every human. Other examples uh, of these shared ontological structures are time, space, mood, embodiment. These are just some. Every human participates in time, space, mood, embodiment. But just because everyone in this room participates in these things doesn't mean that we experience it or express it the same. And that's where we get to the other, the ontic. Because the specific, unique way in which any human is in the world is what is meant by ontic. So ontological is a shared structuring that holds everyone in this room and all human experience. And then each rise out of that with your own very specific experience of being human. Everyone is born a particular gender, particular parents, a particular family in a particular country, culture, religion, lack of religion, and in a particular era, moment. And all of these particulars inevitably influence my ontic existing, my own particular life. 
But the fact that every human is thrown into his or her particularities is something we all share. So being thrown, that's Heidegger's word for it, thrown into your particular situation, is an, to be thrown is ontological. We all share it. We're all thrown. Now another way to suggest these two ideas is to say that ontological refers to what is there for humans, any human, to live out of and into And ontic is the actual lived experience we each have. But it's really important to understand that I've just taken those two, and Heidegger does too, I've taken those two apart, but they are always an intertwine. Okay? There is nothing that is purely ontic or purely ontological. And... um, Sometimes the particular seems to be the most important and obvious, and other times the shared is more what we're aware of. For instance, right now, if a fire alarm goes off, I don't know if you have a fire alarm, but if a fire alarm goes off, we, will pro- we would probably enter more our shared experience of let's get out of here. Okay, But still, each and every one of us would, would have our own story about earlier dangers, the, the difficult situations of, of how anxious we are, the sound, all of that would affect each of us individually. So it, it's, a, it's an intertwine. It's sort of like, uh, for each of us, Heidegger emphasized this intertwine of the shared and the specific, just as he he emphasized the, um, the interdependence of each of us and world, that, it is a, that, that human existence is a kind of intertwine. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment and see if the bombardment has hit uh, any questions yet. Dasein, ontological, and ontic. These are, these are our three words so far. They're all about the human way of being in the world. Are you with me? I have a question. Sure. I missed the last one, the last word you said that was shared. Embodiment. <coughs> Embodiment. <coughs> we'll, yeah, we'll, get, we'll, we'll play with that in a bit. Okay? Um, Heidegger writes very, very little about the body. And he was asked about that at one point, and he was told it's the most difficult problem. I do have one question sure. about Dasein. Mm-hmm. Is this over a lifespan? Mm, good question, yeah. Um, yes, but also in each moment. Um, uh, if I just say right now, please everybody be here, but now please everybody go somewhere else. You will find a beach, you will find a house, you will, you will find, you will, you will, there is a stretch, it's an elasticity of, of the human that is always there. And it's, um, it's interesting because so much emphasis on, on the being here, um, and Heidegger was sort of wanting to correct that, in a, well, not correct it, but offer another 
version because he he was trying not to say what he wished human beings were, but actually what he observed human being was. And this is an exercise, we'll, we'll do this at the end of the evening, it's a way of uh, approaching the world called phenomenology, in which you simply um, attempt to be with what shows, without prejudicing your, you know, without making it be what you want it to be. And now this is important, this is one of the reasons I teach this at, at a training school for psychotherapists, is because there is um, a, a risk I find, particularly with new therapists, that they're all hot to trot with all their theory and they, they've got, you know, they've got a lot of training, a lot of really good thinking and reading and ideas, and we can try to mold the other Whereas a phenomenological approach is simply to be curious about who you are and what, what you need to show me, not what I need to go and find. So it's that stretch. And that's, it, you know, if I'm sitting as a therapist, I'm with me, but I'm also with you. Now that's pretty neat. Okay. <laughs> but there's also... The, the lifespan aspect of it as well. And we'll get to something about lifespan. Okay. Thank you. So just a bit of background of why Heidegger felt he had to, uh, he had to rethink being. Because uh, he wanted, and there's a lot of argument about whether you can possibly do this, but he sort of wanted to loop right back to the pre-Socratics, because he thought Western metaphysics, Western philosophy had begun to go off course. It was just a little bit off course for a while, and then by the time we got to 1927, he thought it was way off course. And he, it, he wanted to get back before that long, slow crawl toward what we in downtown Toronto culture have now, which is the subject-object scientific way of looking at reality. Uh, so he wanted to go back where it, it seems, I mean, it's sort of shadowy, but where so-called Eastern and Western thinking were more indistinguishable, and um, where mind and body had not been artificially divided by, by things like medicine and uh, science. And back to an experience he believed that humans once had, which is that we know ourselves to be whole. Um, now this subject-object split crystallized in the writings of a French philosopher named René Descartes and is called Cartesian thinking. You may have heard about it. It's epidemic out there. Um, and Descartes posited in a moment of nightmare, true nightmare, he, he was phenomenally depressed, uh, I believe probably suicidal, and he had a nightmare, Descartes' nightmare. And he woke up out of it and realized that he, he knew he was thinking, and therefore he wasn't, it, it was like it was going to be worth it. He understood something. 
But from this, he devised this idea that there's a human mind, and then over there, all you guys, I've got my human mind, I'm the subject, and you all get to be the objects of my thinking. And so there is a there is a, an actual gap, or it's called a split, where the subject and each of you get to be the subject to my object. And Heidegger wanted to come and kind of ta- mend this, pull this together. And what he was really on the cusp of is what now in psychological terms, philosophical terms, is known as intersubjectivity, where I'm not a subject and you're an object. You too are a subject. And we intertwine and create whatever our encounter is, is the encounter of two subjects, not a subject and an object. When I first started training as a psychotherapist, my very first lecture, they went on and on about objects because there's a whole school of very interesting British uh, theory called object relations theory. Uh, very important, wonder- some wonderful thinking, but this. And it was about, I don't know, two weeks into the training and I realized they were talking about people. <laughs> All these objects that I was seeking, that I'm, I'm, an, I'm an object-seeking person. And I wonder what objects I'm seeking today. And then it dawned on me, you know, they're talking about the baby wants mother, the baby wants sister, the baby wants dad. The, the human seeks what we would now say another subject. Um, but even subject is a funny word to me. I like to think of us all as people. I'm not writing the big theory. So um, Heidegger's wanting to mend this split, and it actually takes a somewhat later thinker, a Frenchman, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, to, to kind of hone in on what I, I do believe is if you really want to, if you get a little off balance and you want to remind yourself that in fact it is all sort of interconnected. Um, and what, what Merleau-Ponty focused on was the body, was human embodiment. And one of his simple, wonderful exercises was if you don't know whether you're a subject or an object and you're getting a little floaty, put your hands together. Touch your own hands. Try it. Are you the subject? Or are you the object? You're both. And I believe this is one of the reasons that so many cultures pray with hands together. Is that it actually physically reminds us that there is a continuous loop and that there isn't a gap. So I think there's maybe two more big words. I understand, or I think most of you, if not all of you in this room, practice meditation and that may help you understand where where I'm going to try to go next. Um, Heidegger, when I read about how he thought, um, it it often feels to me like walking meditation. 
uh, he had a hut up in the mountains and uh, he would this is the 1920s and 30s and 40s he'd leave his wife and children of course and uh, do the man thing go up into the mountain and think um, and uh, I can just see poor Elfrida going Martin <laughs> come down <laughs> but he did walk uh, like many uh, Europeans, when we were talking about Kyoto, I thought, oh, uh, he walked. He was in, and he 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 understood walking as a as a, a way to think. And um, one of the things that I th- think about walking is that um, when you're walking, neurobiologically, you're going left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. So you're constantly using your full brain. Um, and, uh, but, I mean, he doesn't talk about meditation, but he, late in life, warned us against calculative thinking and put against that, uh, or offered, uh, contemplative thinking, or sometimes translated meditative thinking. And it is, this is much later than being in time, and he's been quite influenced by primarily Japanese thinking at this point. There's a wonderful dial, uh, uh, dialogue, it actually is, from the early 50s, 53, 54, called Dialogue on Language, and he is actually in a walking, uh, he walks for many pages with a Japanese scholar, and they, they trade back and forth ideas of, is there an essence of language below German and Japanese? Is there something ontological in all languages? And uh, he had a number of encounters with, they, most of them were Japanese thinkers. Um, so back in 1927, when he publishes Being in Time, he's, he talks about something that is, in German, it's called Eigenlichkeit. Worry about that. Um, a good translation, I think, is own most. O W N. Own. My own. Pulp. En français. Own most. And now this is usually translated as authenticity. Unfortunately, I think in English, authentic has a kind of moral flavor, like authentic is all good and inauthentic is all bad. And that's not what he's talking about, because you always have to remember when you're reading Being in Time, he's talking at the ontological level. He's talking out of the basic possibility. He's not giving it valence or value. So what he's, I think, describing is if we pay attention, we know what is truly our own. Now, some people would say, well, that is a moral value. Um, but I, I'm not, to me, it, isn't, it is more neutral. It's like, it's just like, okay, who am I? You know? And it's a practice. And he, he, he understands this, not because he did yoga or meditation, but I, I do think he understands a practice of, of finding what is my own. And uh, he also describes the urge to disown. And particularly what I disown is this ownmost part of myself. 
And one of the distracting forces that he describes is called the they. Yeah. It's actually das Mann in German. And Mann is, if you want to say, one does this and one does that, it's the one. But it gets translated as the they, which is unfortunate because it kind of sounds like it's all about them and not about me, you know. It, it, it should be kind of the we, the us. Um, but this is a kind of identification with the collective that pulls us away from our own unique calling. And it has, he says, sometimes a tranquilizing effect. And it's like, well, everybody does it, or um, um, what he calls leveled down possibilities. It limits my possibilities because it's all determined by what the they off- says is okay to do. And it, he says, he reminds us that too much time with the they, we are distracting ourselves, wasting time, which he reminds us is our life. That this is my life. And I have choices to make about whether to own or disown. But, and this gets tricky, the they is also an absolutely necessary part of human existence. It provides some of our most creative solutions to issues of the common good. Uh, Art, social mores, religion, education, these are all upwellings of the they. the they includes a million everyday agreements a society must have in order to remain cohesive, such as what a 7.30 start time to a lecture means. You know, you all kind of got it. You were pretty much here. Nobody came at four, right? Um, another is when you pull up or walk up to a traffic light, you don't have to think, hmm, red. Stop or go? Green. Is that We have agreed. It keeps things flowing. It's actually also a very creative part of our life. And um, without it, existence would be chaotic because we'd all be, you know, making wildly different, you know, somebody would say C-A-T is cat and somebody else said, no, it spells midnight. I mean, we can't, we can't do that. So, so there's a tendency in some descriptions of the they to demonize it, to make it be all bad and we must stay away from it. But in fact, it's, it's some of our, our greatness as, a, as an evolving species also lives there. So, how do we get out of this dilemma? We have a they-self and the possibility of an owned self. The they-self tends to follow the dominant pervasive ways of any culture. I mean, all you have to do is land yourself in a new culture. When you get to Kyoto, you're going to know you you, you can't rely completely on the they, but you're going to want to figure out the they pretty fast because it it actually supports part of of how we are in the world. 
Heidegger says the problem is that in the they, everyone is the other and no one is himself. So the problem with the they is that when I am making the choice toward that, to lean toward that, I actually don't belong to my own most possibilities and others don't belong to theirs. Uh, So in this, at this point, Dasein's particularity, peculiarity, uniqueness, your ownness is unfound, unexpressed, and unexperienced. So I think that when Heidegger speaks of an own-most authenticity, he's actually describing a kind of balancing of our deep human tendency to live off balance from ourselves. In my inauthentic choices, I misunderstand or lose sight of how to be just me. An authentic choice shows that I understand that I've been inauthentic. calls me back to myself. Now, of course, no one can simply be authentic as an ongoing, once-and-for-all experience. This is where often students of Heidegger get all excited. This is it. Okay. Quarter after eight, I'm authentic. No more of this inauthentic stuff. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about um, a rhythm, a balance, a balancing a calling back to myself and a letting myself be. And remember, the whole time this is being held by being in the world with others. And this can be part of our problems. Because my own most may bump into your own most. right? So maybe we both just go back into the they where it seems a little bit safer. But then you begin feeling, wait a minute, that I don't like this compliance, I don't like this leveling down of my possibilities. What about, I want to sing, and, and I'm in the middle of a room that everybody tells me I'm not allowed to sing. What about me? You know. So then you come back to something that feels more fully belonging to yourself. Can I ask a question? Sure. So um, is there a relationship between this, um, I guess, almost self and... And the they das man, and uh, the ontic and ontological. Um, it seems it seems like the. Uh huh. I see what you're saying. The possibility of the they, and the possibility of an own most are both ontological. They are structures of being human. And then each of us lives those differently, um, and that's the ontic. For instance, in my work as a therapist, um, for some reason we seem to live in a culture that um, produces a lot of very compliant people. And so I will, I will sit with someone who, who is disturbed by, who is suffering from over-compliance. Like, and my way of thinking is they, they, they haven't discovered their own yet. It lives there as a possibility but I haven't lived, I haven't, it's always there as a structure, but I haven't, I haven't sat in it. I'm not sitting in it yet. Um, and, and partly in things, I'm, yoga, uh, meditation, psychotherapy, a lot of healing practices, I think, 
um, are actually, they share this um, hope that, that people will move into at least an awareness of their own. You can't, Heidegger says, and it, people disagree, of course, about this, he says you can't stay there, but you can visit yourself. And some people get to visit themselves very frequently. And other people, for whatever reasons, they are—they have to stay more in the they. Can I ask something? Sure. But doesn't it mean that if you're too compliant, that you lost yourself? If you're too compliant, you've yeah. lost. Yes. Yeah. There, th- this you to me. You find yourself because you never had yourself. You had it probably when you were a kid. Exactly. And certainly in the perspective I bring to so much of this is developmental because I, I, I work as a psychotherapist. The two main things are the existential and the developmental. And it is often true that a child uh, from very early on will not be encouraged to, uh, to find their own. They, uh, parents or a culture will say, no, we know who you need to be. And so that's a, that's a huge struggle. There's that wonderful Hebrew prayer for the children, um, which is so simple. May you become who you are. And to me, that's speaking about the, the urge toward the own most. But it can get literally beaten out of us. It can get talked out of us. It's, uh, um, and what, what's exciting, what I find very exciting, people who read Being in Time, they get very excited about this part of it. And I think it's because it kind of uh, resonates, that it's a challenge to, okay, how, how much of my own have I let myself drop into? We used to, I don't know if they still talk about midlife crises, they used to. Um, and uh, uh, I think that that was a phenomenon of, of, a, of a, a point in life where, where there had been too much compliance and things were not, um, not enough of the side that is my own had been allowed. So, so it's a big struggle if that has been a, um, from childhood, and it usually is. But this is a, I think of it as a pendulum swinging or a balancing. Um, and, and there's always the important thing is that we also need the they. We need to participate. Everyone wants to belong to a tribe. I mean, that's part of human social engagement community. Um, so we may, we may uh, risk our own most by finding our own community. And then have this wonderful possibility of community and my own. But we have to stay aware, you know, because there's, it's like a dulling. That's the way I think of it. It's like, oh boy, something's dulled in me. I'm not, I'm not. Or I sometimes get the feeling of clogged. My husband knows this one. I'm not porous today, darling. <laughs> it's, it's like there's too much, um, there's too much of the, probably the they, that, uh, that I'm not able to breathe in and out. Um, uh, it's like breathing. You're breathing in and out. Yes, it's very, that's, 
breath is a very important image. It's like you take in the they, it's yours, you, you translate it into you and you give it out again. And that's the other thing, remember, the, whatever is ownmost for uh, each of us, um, we can contribute into the they. And hopefully there's an evolution of, of something possible. Sure? You, you don't have to get into this, but I just can't help be thinking about like Germany yeah. in these years. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the question in the mm-hmm. country, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. you know, the individual or the they, mm-hmm. and we know which way it went. Yeah, and absolutely. It just sounds like what he's articulating is exactly what's going on, yeah. Yeah. not just psychologically in people, yeah. but literally day to day. And what's very important is Heidegger as a man made, as far as I'm concerned, terrible mistakes during the war. He, he was not a good guy. He joined the Nazi party. He was the rector of a university. He spoke, he believed up till about 1936, 32, 36, that, that this was the great reawakening of Germany. And I, I have struggled for so long with this in his life and in the times. Um, and at, time, at, at one point thought, well, I can't possibly teach Martin Heidegger. He was, he was bad. And he, you know, there was, there was real, I mean, there are things about him that I find, as a human being, repellent. But I actually think he was somehow choosing something of his own. I don't agree with it. But this is the thing, this, uh, this idea of almost isn't for me or anybody to judge morally. He, he says very clearly in Being in Time, this is not about morals, this is not about religion, this is not about education, this is not about sociology, this is about ontology. This is what is there for all of us to build our lives out of. What do we all share? And what we all share is a powerful pull to the they and sometimes a powerful pull to our own and sometimes a much less powerful pull. And the 30s in Germany, um, a powerful pull toward a particular they. And a lot of terrible things to those who stood against it. And Heidegger was not one of those who stood against it. Um, I spend a lot of time in my lectures at CTP dealing with this question. But yes, the times. And, and again, he's a thinker in a particular time. Everybody gets a time, but we get a particular time. And he got, he grew up and was very influenced by the what was happening in Europe and Germany post World War One. Um, I also teach literature, a lit- graduate literature course at CTP, and um, <laughs> maybe I'm not a psychotherapist. <laughs> I teach philosophy and literature, uh, uh, and we've just finished studying uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, and uh, a- an amazing look at. Uh, what was there in that time 
for for Germany to try to develop something out of. And we we know the the horrors of what was chosen. Um, so this isn't that you're going to be better than somebody else by knowing your own. It's, it's not a guarantee. I don't think it's a guarantee. He's not talking about a guarantee about getting it right or being really good. It's just that it matters that we, that we have a knowing of our own. Because once we know something about that, then we go differently into the day. And that alters the thing. Now I realize it is 8.30 and I haven't gotten to angst or being toward death. Uh, uh, <laughs> Keep going. Can I finish? It's a, we're, we're close. So then he says, this is very interesting, um, he's trying, remember, just to do a phenomenology, like he's just trying to look at what human being is. He says, it is fascinating uh, that something about being human, we want to be distracted from our own, <clears throat> or else it wouldn't be a problem. We'd all, you know, just be our own all the time. And he suggests that one of the principal reasons is because the human being always, already, this is a phrase that he uses, always, already. It's, it's happened, like we inherit it, it somehow. And always, already, at some level, the human understands that all living is also a being towards death. At every moment, I and each one of you are both living and dying. But when you turn to someone and say, how are you dying today? It doesn't, it, you know, it, no, I mean, it really, talk about waking somebody up, it startles people. But I think it's a very, very useful way to hold that time, as Michael was talking about, that our time, in this life at least, and Heidegger says, don't know about other lives. That's not what my book's about. I'm just about this life. Um, It's limited. And something about what he calls, and he hyphenates it, being toward death. And it's ontological, too. We all share this. And in some cultures, it doesn't seem to be that problematic. In this culture right now, we do everything to stay away from this. Uh, I don't know if you know, on Davenport, as it curves uh, above Jesse Ketchum, is one of my favorite places in Toronto. It's the anti-aging shop. (laughs) Never seen anyone come out of that. (laughs) surefire cure (laughs) so if at every moment I am both living and dying um, 
this is somehow at the heart of everything if we can let ourselves bear it. And Heidegger suggests it's one of the reasons we want to distract ourselves from ourselves. So what's interesting about that formulation is that he says, you already have it. You know it. You know the big problem. That is your own most problem. So how are you going to live? Now the thing about this is that again, in the they, some of our most creative responses to mortality, there's religion, rituals, artistic creation. I mean, this, these come out of this shared knowing that we, that we are dying. And then there are these covering over, uh, like the anti-aging shop, and life insurance, for instance. I mean, there, you, I don't have to tell you, it's out there. We all know that, we're, that there's all sorts of ways to, uh, the youth culture, you know, here I am an old woman and I just want to wear my jeans and, and t-shirt and pretend that I'm not an old woman, you know. <laughs> so Heidegger's analysis of Dasein also explores how humans know this owning and disowning. He says we, we actually do know we're making choices. Choice is a big, big word in, uh, in being in time. And he says that how we know this about ourselves comes through the remarkably important fact of mood. Mood doesn't get talked about very much in Western philosophy. And I'm never not in a mood. But usually at any given moment, my mood is so near to me that I have no real experience that it is shaping how I am. That He calls it a way of finding yourself. In German, when you say, uh, how you doing, it actually translates, how do you find yourself? Like, yes, yeah, oh, you know, yes, yes. great, great. Oh, good. <laughs> it's, it's like, how do you find yourself? Well, let me check my mood. <laughs> and it, it's a, it's an, it's, I like the, the, the verb, the idea of, of finding myself through my mood. Now, in my work, um, I often work with mood. Um, we've, we've pathologized mood. We have mood disorders now and mood clinics and things like that. And, and that's because there are times for some people that mood... Um, um, depression, what used to be called melancholy, now is uh, depression. Uh, it's a mooded reality that not only influences, but actually can define a human life. And part of the wonderful thing about mood, and it, I think anyone who studies Buddhism, um, is, is that it changes. You know, there's cha- it's in it's sort of our. It's one of the most certain ways we know there is change in the world. But when it locks down, and all we can have is the moodedness of anxiety or the moodedness of of depression, then then it's like um, one of our principal ways of knowing, um, knowing ourselves, finding ourselves, gets kind of so static that we lose contact. Now, according to Heidegger, 
there's one particular mood that lends itself especially to really having us drop into my innermost. And he calls this mood angst. And again, that is not uh, usual. Sometimes it's translated as dread. Terrible translation. It, uh, A-N-G-S-T, angst. Okay? And he says that it's, it's a very rare mood. Okay? It's not anxiety, which is an all-too-common mood. And what it... it, it it's that time where suddenly... You are alone in the world. And he says the actual issue of angst is being in the world itself. It's as if it's as if you have to know that you might not be in the world. And this is part of being towards death. And it kind of galvanizes something. And um, if anyone knows this experience, I think you will recognize it in his description. I certainly uh, do. Um, And he throws in this winger, angst can arise in the most innocuous situations. It has no need of darkness. It can happen in the brightest sunlight. Let's say, for instance, I arrive tonight and I'm not prepared to talk to you. I haven't done any thinking. I haven't done any writing. I might say, I'm feeling anxious because I'm not prepared. That's not angst. But if I come tonight, I'm reasonably well prepared. I've I've been responsible in preparing and I'm sitting here just like I am now, reasonably articulate. And all of a sudden, I realize I am not I'm not prepared for the depth and breadth of my own possibilities. That would be a moment of angst because I've got to make a choice. What do I do with this experience? It, it's, uh, the word for me is galvanizing. It, boom, it magnetizes something. And um, yeah, there was a question. Is it always negative? Um, well, it might be. Depends on who you are. <laughs> um, he sees it as uh, neither negative nor positive, but necessary. It's just something we have to be open to if we really want to know deeply who we are. Um, it would be. It can be frightening. Um, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't feel when he writes about it like negative energy. It's a. It's. Um, it's creative, but it doesn't mean it's pleasant. Well, both experiences, both examples you used, were quite overwhelming and frightening experiences. Uh-huh. So I was wondering if there's a, a more of a positive example. Um. <coughs> Well, yeah, I was just thinking the other day of, of, of a moment years ago when I was walking along street in the annex uh, about this time of year, and I saw a tree. Like, I saw this tree. And it, it did that to me. 
It was like, I've got to, I've got to make some choices here. I can't, I can't explain. I mean, this is, I'm just revealing something personal about myself. It, it's that kind of. It didn't. Um, it wasn't scary. It was overwhelming in that it was big. You know, it really got my attention. Um, but it's kind of like a waking up. That I think you know in a Buddhist vocabulary. I think you, it's it's one, it's the waking up. But it, for Heidegger, it doesn't. You don't just wake up. You have to keep waking up. Is, it, is the translation not fear? No, fear is another. Frucht is another. Um, uh, he makes a very important distinction. Fear is about something. Angst is about nothing at all. Is there a translation? Uh, uh, usually, dread has been used, uh, anxiety has been used, uh, but most translations now just use angst. And but fear, uh, furcht, yeah, yeah, um, is um, he's very clear. This isn't fear. Fear sort of makes sense for him, but angst is is just like why would a tree on Walmer Avenue, you know, it's that kind of. Okay, um, yes, it is getting late. Um, I'll just read you my last part. The way I understand it, angst is the experience of radical doubt, absolute questioning, the felt lived possibility that I must choose in relation to being. It's a rare and galvanizing moment, a time of sudden awakening and sometimes a time of real dis-ease. It is definitely not business as usual of the Veso. There are many choices, many possibilities for each of us, according to Heidegger, and what is authentic for one may be inauthentic for another. According to Heidegger, both the authentic for one, the inauthentic for another, both are possible ways Dasein is open to encounter the world, open to being in the world with others. Thank you. You've been wonderfully attentive. Now, I had brought an exercise for us to do on hermeneutic phenomenology, but it would keep us here till nine. So, uh, uh, if two people want to stay, I'll still do it. It's kind of fun, but if... Maybe it might be nice just to take, like, five oh, so, yeah. if there's but, questions. Oh, stuff. questions, right. Questions. <laughs> questions. Any more questions? Or comments. Or comments. I have a question. I'm thinking about, um, when you talk about angst, it sounds like it's both, it's, it's like some experience and then, like, a, a choice, because there's something that happens in one moment, or... Like, I think of experiences of awe and, like, seeing something so many dimensions. And then, like, and then what happens after that? And I'm just curious because the way that you talked about it sounded like one happening. Um, No, choice, angst is not choice. Angst, awe, awe is a very interesting 
That's a very interesting possibility for this in the uh, kind of Hebraic sense of awe, um, awesome, like is not, uh, it's the same word as awful. It, you know, uh, that, that, that it's an overwhelming sense of awe. Um, for Heidegger, that moment comes and it's, it's uh, oh, there's, I mean, there's so many other things. There's this, the care structure. When he says that angst is about being in the world itself, he means it's like you walk to the edge of a cliff and one more step and you're not in the world, okay? Now, you are. You are. This is the, this is the, the difficult thing. Of course you're in the world. But the experience of, of the person is one more step and I'm, I am no longer held by this interdependent network, okay? And um, in that moment, what actually is about, feels like it might end, is our involvement in world. Um, now, it isn't about death, but I think it's very much connected. It's like a, another one of those wake-up calls that I am being towards death. So as, as, as Rilke, the German poet, says at the end of a poem, you must change your life. It's kind of that feeling. Um, it, it, and, but it doesn't say how you're going to change your life. It's just that. And, and my tree example, I, I don't understand it. I mean, it's not a cognitive process. It just, things are different after the experience. And, and, it, and you can, it doesn't, and, and you can be tranquilized again. That's why he, it's not just like, it's over, you've, you're there, you've cleared. It's, 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 it's because we also have this other, I want to lean, you know. It, it is a balancing act. Um, how do we stay on the, the tightrope of our particular thread in this enormous interconnected web? Well, you know, it's tricky. Does that help? Um, yeah, I still don't feel clear about what the choice... Oh, the choice piece? Yeah. Oh, um, well, he would. Uh, the easiest way to say it is the choice is you can either own or disown. So let's say, um, uh, let's say my tree experience. Uh, I'm actually on a stretch of Walmer Road just before Dupont. There's the big shoppers drug mart. Okay, so oh, and something can't actually let. I can't be with this. So where do I find myself? Shopping at Shoppers Drug Mart. Right? <laughs> Buying toothbrushes and things that, you know, that would be one, I'm, I'm making this up, that I shop at Shoppers Drug Mart, but <laughs> this, that would be, that would be a, dis, a kind of disowning, like I can't bear this. Um, and the way of choosing to own would be as different as each person. Some person, people would never speak of. And actually, it's very strange to me, this is the first time I've spoken of it. Um, it was years ago. It, 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 or you might go and write about it, or you might turn it into a short story, or you might um, call your best friend. It, 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 there, 
it will depend on how you own. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I'm just kind of making this up in that this is this close, these, there are experiences I have had that when I read in Being in Time, I think of those experiences. But I, I, I don't know, I'm not, everyone's, the angst is, and it's, and it's very important, I think, he emphasizes how rare these experiences are. Are they always existential, or can they be as a result of someone, say, someone dying? Oh yes! Oh, absolutely! Oh, absolutely! I, I, yeah. I I mean, I, I don't want to sit here and pose as the angst expert. (laughs) Yes, he doesn't. He doesn't give a list of what these can be because remember, he's always saying we're just talking about the structure that makes these things happen. So they will happen for each of you as differently as you are different. But it's a possibility that we all share. Yeah. I wonder if he ever speaks to like how we take care of that structure, and especially when there is that moment of pause, too, mm-hmm. and based on a little bit on his personal history. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of yoga traditions will say, like once you've seen that fully, mm-hmm. you know that the natural inclination will be to affirm it and mm-hmm. to nourish it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if he speaks to that at all. Um, not exactly like that, but he does, and this is a whole. I mean, I could have spent the whole evening talking about this. One of the ways he describes Dasein is being in the world with others. And then there's another way that he describes Dasein being in the world with others, and it's called the care structure. Okay, The German word is Sorge. And it's, um, uh, I think, probably better translated as involvement structure. It's the, or the, it's, it's the ontological way in which the human is involved in world with others. So paying attention to that is a way of paying attention to the whole underlying structure of being human. But he doesn't, he's, he's not talking in the same way as the yoga uh, philosophy, I don't think, as I understand it. I should have said some philosophy. I saw Okay. Yes. Is it an end, or is it the, just the crisis that leads to something else? To be honest. Uh, it's it's a crisis. Interesting word. Uh, crisis. It, it it's crisis in the sense of um, it's critical. I mean, it's crucial. Yeah. Uh, it's not the end. It, it, it's not. Uh, he, he doesn't talk about death being angst. Uh, and he's also very clear. He says, I'm talking only of being toward death. He said, death, I don't know. We don't know. That's a mystery. So he just leads us, just reminds us that we are moving toward this mystery. I don't think he uses that word. That's my word. Uh, so it's not an end. 
It, it's not definitive, but it's a, it's a reminder. That's not a big enough word. Um, it just, uh, it wakes you up. When you say wakes you up, it means that there is a resolution to it? Or is it uh, well, no, it just, it, it, it seems to me what he's talking about is that then I have to live differently. And, and I may be able to, to live differently in a very big and long way, and I may not. I may be drawn, you know, um, drawn into the they for any number of reasons. I always think of it as kind of like a wordless message. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, he'd like that. He, he talked about, he, he'd like that. He talked about the friend every Dasein has in within that's kind of whispering sweet nothings to us, if only we'd listen. Yeah. 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 And it is wordless. It's, it's the, it's, it's a, it's a mooted bodily experience, I think, that he describes. Yeah? It, it, it keeps sounding more and more to me like the felt sense of panic. Oh. Which, you know, doesn't have to be negative, but that, that intensity of when you have that felt sense that you have to make a choice and do something. Right. And uh, somewhere between the panic and the clarity. Talk about in meditation sometimes mm-hmm. just that mm-hmm. something can. It, it, we don't always. It's not concrete, but it's a felt sense. Right. Yes, and and clarity is also. I think it does. It is clarifying, but Heidegger doesn't say what it clar- what what it clarifies. <laughs> That's up to us. Uh, in our in the ontic, each of us different. I have to admit I didn't really know anything about him before I your It's fine. But um, <laughs> it would seem like there's a lot of tragic irony in what he was writing about, considering the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if this was him struggling with his own demons, with mm-hmm. his own internal consciousness about his role um, at that particular point in history. So when he, when he talks about things like and angst. Mm -hmm. Were these things that um, were part of an inner struggle that he had? Did he eventually ever write about a sense of guilt or nothing? Well, it's interesting. He uses the word guilt, the same word that Freud used for guilt. In in German it's Schuld, S-C-H-U-L-D. And guilt uh, in German is both guilt and debt, it, it, you know. So Heidegger, uh, Freud lands on the guilt side, and Heidegger lands on the lands on the debt side. So he talks about existential guilt, and this is um, I can never uh, reimburse the debt of my existing, that I exist is a debt that I, I can't pay. Um, so he, he talks, has a wonderful sections on, on, on the importance of knowing that we, um, we always live out of a certain indebtedness. 
Now, he doesn't do what... Lots of people have come after Heidegger and taken his ideas and, and, and developed them. Like, he doesn't, um, doesn't talk about gratitude, for instance. He just reminds us that, that um, the precious gift of human life, you know, it's, it's, it's not a... I'm not a self-made person. Now, what he is... Um, you see, the, the, the thing is, what he was really worried about were the Americans and the Russians. He thought that if thinking got into the grips of Stalin and the Americans, we were going to lose thinking. He really did believe. Now, the rest of Germany <laughs> thought the same thing, but they weren't worried so much about the thinking. It was that these were the monsters on the technological uh, imperialism of um, North America. He really said, we will get swallowed in this. And he's written some wonderful essays on technology in the 50s, prescient pieces. And then on the other side, on the other border, were the Russians. And you know, that was another kind of being swallowed up. So his non-compliance was to join the Nazis. You know? So it, it's, it, it, it's a good lesson in perspective, in what we, how we look at something and what happens when we turn it around. No. I think Personally, you know, he made mistakes, <laughs> big mistakes. Uh, but there is something about, I can well imagine how frightened, when you really get into his writing, there was so, there's something about the misuse of technology and how it is dehumanizing. He talked about the danger that humans were becoming gestell, um, standing order like in the supermarket, just boxes of Cheerios. And this was in the late 40s and 50s. So he knew he, there was something. And that, for him, would have been the, the most dangerous compliance. And then, of course, the irony being the German use of technology during the war. So it's, uh, it's an, it's, there are books and books and books particularly the French. The French are just on top of this with Heidegger, and there's a lot, a lot happening, um, a lot of new stuff coming out, and we don't have his journals yet. You know, it has to be the 50 years after his death. There are a lot of things that we don't know yet. Um, but I guess where I sit is that being in time is a work of ontology. And then he chose to live his ontological structures in a very particular way. I don't think it was the right way. Yes? I want to go back to Ongs. Yes. Um, oh, yes, we mustn't leave Ongs. Would you say that, I guess I'm trying to understand in my own head, would you say that it's a moment in time where the ontic and the ontological recognize each other, just like these? Oh. That's cool. I like that. I, I can't uh, yay or nay that one. I have to go away and think. That's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> the idea of uh, 
recognizing one another. I think you'd like that one too. Thank you. Did he talk about it in that structure at all? No. Uh, uh, no. For him, angst is ontological. It is an, it, it's a mood, a particular ontological structure that um, we will each experience differently in our ontic way. But it, it kind of, it's a point at which my ontic choices and the ontological possibilities collide. Yeah, they recognize each other. That's nice. question about coming back to the use of the word debt mm -hmm. and that if he was conceiving of the world as an interrelated system and sort of it's easy to see how things come out of other things and that's how mm -hmm. things roll along that almost seems to me to imply some larger almost religiosity yeah um, forgive us our debts uh, um he was, uh, if he hadn't grown up to be a philosopher, he would have grown up to be a Jesuit. But he had, um, well, no, that's kind of backwards. He, he was, uh, the family wanted him to go into the priesthood. And so he tried, and he loved the academics, but pretty soon he was developing terrible heart palpitations. And as soon as he got out of the priesthood training, they went away. So he thought maybe this isn't the, the way I should go. So, but he is so informed. Thank you so much for coming. We should maybe just wrap up yeah. so that if people yeah. want to keep talking, that's, they, that's, can, yeah. they can talk to you. And um, the uh, hermeneutic phenomenology, we'll do another time maybe. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're wrapped up. Thank you so much.